A reading from Paul's letter to the Romans, chapters 9 through 11. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit, that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but when also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, Our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make, use of, to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people I will call my people. And to her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved, for the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, We would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. What shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. 
that is, a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law. The person who does the commandments shall live by them. The righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart, that is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him who they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? How are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed, they have. For their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. The foolish nation, I will make you angry. And Israel is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to disobedient and contrary people. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone, alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed to the knee of Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? 
Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see, ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and and bend their backs forever. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches from the world and their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now I am speaking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump, and if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, are grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant towards the branches. If you are, remember it is not you who supports the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise you too will be cut off. Even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted, contrary to nature, into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. This will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but have now received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, who has been his counselor, 
or who has given a gift to him that might be repaid. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. And thanks be to Alec for reading that <laughs> long section to us. Yep. <laughs> Happy uh, extra day of sleep to all of you. I figured that perhaps in this day and age of automatically changing clocks, some of you might even be unaware that you are existing this day on an extra hour of sleep. Uh, So this is the public service announcement portion of the sermon. And I trust that that extra hour served you well during that long reading of Scripture as you were able to remain focused and attentive. Uh, That's not a normal practice for us in our day and age, to sit and listen to the public reading in that long way. We've been practicing it here at the Painted Door for the past four weeks. We're going to continue it for just two more weeks. Some of you may be relieved to hear, Uh, but by the end of that, we'll have publicly read the entirety of the book of Romans. And the reason that we are doing that is because Romans lends itself to a zoomed-in look. When people read through the book of Romans, all too often we stumble over particular passages, phrases, verses. There's such rich and depth in the text of Romans that we can tend to be drawn in very close to the book in a way that then forfeits seeing the overarching narrative of the book of Romans. And we miss out on what are some of the grand and broad themes of the book of Romans to our great detriment. And this particular passage that we're looking at today, chapters 9 through 11, is especially susceptible to that mistake of zooming in too close to the exclusion of seeing the whole. Of course, it's very good to zoom in on the scripture. It's very good to look at the particular phrases, the particular verses of scripture. We plan to do that in the new year. We're going to zoom in on chapters five through eight specifically and work through them line by line when the public reading of scripture will be one or two verses. You're welcome. Uh, It'll be cold outside and we'll have a nice relieving, warming time here all together. But for today, and in this present season, we're wanting to zoom out to see the overarching story in the book of Romans. And chapters 9 through 11, I mentioned, are especially, this is especially important to do. Because there are verses, there are phrases in chapters 9 through 11 that when ripped out of their context, when looked at in too zoomed in of a way can lead you to conclusions about what the apostle is saying that are rather misguided, rather mistaken. Uh, I can remember quite well, actually, a time in my life when I was convinced that there were particular verses in Romans chapter 9 that could serve as the linchpins uh, in my young, studious Christian arguments about the free will of man opposing the sovereignty of God. And so I would often ride roughshod over the context of the book of Romans and take my freight train into Romans chapter 9, pluck out these one or two verses and use them to win debates over my college friends. At least I thought I was winning. Um, And I think this is actually quite common among young people, especially given the book of Romans, that we can get too zoomed in and miss the overarching context. But really, it wasn't until many years later 
that as I started to read Romans more broadly and in larger chunks and started to understand the historical context of the book of Romans, that I started to see that chapters 9 through 11 actually are not about philosophical conversations on the free will of people and the sovereignty of God at all. In fact, chapters 9 through 11 are about the indiscriminate, dogged determination of God to rescue people no matter their station or place of privilege in the world. That God comes after peoples of all kinds and has in fact always come after peoples of all kinds without regard to their place of privilege in the world or their station in the world. In fact, he's indiscriminate in his pursuit of people, his pursuit of nations, his pursuit of religious backgrounds, what have you. He's chasing us all down. And what Paul means to get across in this particular section of of Romans is that there is no status or merit that puts us in a place of privilege with God. There is no background, there is no heritage, there is no family dynamic, there is no church tradition that puts you in a privileged place with God or renders you someone that God is particularly interested in. God uh, chooses people of his own accord. He moves toward people of his own accord. It's his grace, it's his mercy, it's his will. He comes after us, not due to our working our way toward him, to our status or our merit in his eyes, but rather because he has mercy on whom he has mercy. And God actually thinks nothing of tearing down those places of privilege and status and merit that we would assume put us in a place of privilege with him. In other words, when we find ourselves falling into the trap of believing that we have some special access to God, he's happy to rip down the institutions that lead us to that false belief, if only for the sake of waking us up. He thinks nothing of tearing down everything that we have built in our individual lives, our careers, our places of safety in the world, our status. He thinks nothing of tearing down nations. He thinks nothing of tearing down whole religious systems, if only for the purpose, in his mercy, of waking people up to himself, waking people up to true relationship with him, dependence on him, alive living in him, his love being the animating influence in our lives. So in Paul's day, the Jewish people, the Jews of the first century, though they were not in a place of cultural elite status, they were subjugated peoples under the Roman rule of the Roman Empire, they were in a place that they deemed to be religiously privileged. They believed of themselves that they had special access to God, that they were God's chosen people after all. And Paul, who himself is a Jew, is writing to address that belief, address that presumption of the Jews that they have this special access, this special place in the mind or the heart of God. The Jews in the first century, they believed that God would protect them from trouble. They believed that God had their backs. And what's more, they presumed on this. 
They presumed on this place of privilege. And it was in that place of presumption that many of the first century Jews had grown quite apathetic to life with God or relationship with God. They had come to believe that doing Jewish things, practicing Jewish religious life, would automatically lead to connection between them and God. And Paul is pointing out that God would be happy to tear all that down if only to reawaken their dim hearts to a true and vibrant relationship with him. This is actually how Paul had thought about his own life. This is how he knows so well where the first century Jewish community finds itself because he had grown up in that community. He'd grown up believing that because he was biologically Jewish, because he was practicing first century religious Judaism, Second Temple Judaism, that he was automatically in special place with God, that he had favor with God. And it wasn't until God knocked Paul from his high horse, literally, and humiliated him and blinded him that Paul was reawakened into just how desperate and needy of a person he actually was. This is the great error of people who come to see themselves as living in a privileged religious place with God is that we start to not see just how desperate and needy we are for God. And so the Apostle Paul was awakened to that desperation and neediness in his own life, and he now is charging other Jews, all of the Jewish community, to see that desperation and neediness with him. See, God God thinks nothing of tearing down whole systems of thought, of bringing people to their knees, if only to reawaken them to authentic, true, vibrant relationship with him. And what's especially applicable for us is that the Apostle Paul is including this section of Romans. He's including these words of warning, this call to the Jews to wake up to who God really is, to no longer be ensnared in simple, empty religious practice. He's including it in a letter that is written to the Gentiles. And he's including it here because he means to say to the Gentiles, you all now are being welcomed into this relationship with God. Do not think for one moment that you are any less susceptible to the error that the Jewish community is presently making. Do not think that you are any less susceptible to that place of presumption, to coming into a place where you believe yourselves to be in privileged relationship with God, where you start to look to your own traditions as something that ensures that you have connection with God. And so he's warning Gentile converts here to learn this lesson of first century Judaism, that we don't become complacent, that we don't fall into the trap of apathy, of presuming that we have favor with God because of the traditions that we participate in or the community that we participate in. He wants them to avoid becoming dull of mind and heart, convinced that God is for them only as a sort of religious accessory, as though God can be a source of a little bit of life and meaning and purpose without being the foundational source of all of being. 
This is what privileged religious communities do. They relegate God. They compartmentalize him to keep him safe, to make him an accessory to the life that they want to live, to the very safe and practical life that they want to live. So Paul writes about this happening to the Jewish people in his day, and he writes this in Romans chapter 9, it's not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. He's pointing out here, you Jews have mistakenly believed that because you are biological descendants of the father of Judaism, because you are the children of Abraham, therefore you are connected into the covenant promises that God made to the children of Abraham. But, Paul says, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. These are dangerous and explosive words for a Jew to be writing in the first century. Paul is, in essence, undermining the whole basis for Jewish identity. He's saying, just because you were born biologically a Jew, that does not mean that you're a Jew. Just because you identify with the nation of Israel, just because you are included in the nation of Israel, that does not mean that you are a part of true Israel. That does not mean that you have special place in the covenant promises of God. In fact, the promises that God made to Abraham were promises to the children of his faith. People who shared in the faith of Abraham, not people who shared in the biology of Abraham. Being biological descendants of Abraham does not put you in any special place or standing with God. It's faith and faith alone. And Paul says here, of course, it's not as though the promises of God have failed because it was never on the basis of biology or culture that God was moving toward the Israelite people. It was never on the basis of their being true descendants of Abraham biologically that he was making his promises to them. This would have infuriated many Jewish people in the first century because they were relying on their standing as biologically Jewish in order to assure themselves that they were connected to God and had favor with God. They were sure that they were okay with God that God was with them. And Paul is saying, though, that identifying as Jewish, identifying with this community, does not necessarily mean that God's life and righteousness is coursing through your frame. It doesn't necessarily mean that you are alive in him. In fact, Paul says, many Gentiles have this life of God coursing through their veins simply by way of faith, having never identified with historic Jewish practices, having no claim to being biological descendants of Abraham. He writes toward the end of chapter 9, What shall we say then, that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is a righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching the law? Why? Because they did not pursue it By faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put 
to shame. Jewish people were believing that practicing Jewish religious activity connected them to God, that identifying as Jewish connected them to God, that made them close to God, going to temple, fellowshipping with other Jews, participating in religious observances, in sacred meals, in sacred washings, that engaging in the liturgies of Second Temple Judaism produced a true and vibrant relationship with God. But Paul says if those things are not born of faith, then they are empty. They have no power and life flowing through them. And he says these Gentiles, these people who have no religious credentials, these people who have no heritage of connection to Yahweh, no story of him working in and among their forefathers, all they have is faith. All they know is that they need God. And not necessarily intellectually even. They know that they need God in their heart of hearts. They have an experience of neediness that is defining their faith, that is defining their life with God. They don't presume that God is for them because of safe theological calculations. Their faith is marked by the experience of desperation by the experience of need. They daily long for him. They daily want him. They daily are encountering this reality of their need for him. It's, it's actually remarkable how applicable and universal Paul's words to the first century Jewish community are. Paul here, of course, is pointing out this mistake among first century Jews that they have considered themselves a privileged religious class and presumed on their favor and relationship with God, and that's led to rank apathy and a lack of vibrant relationship with God, that they're relying on sort of religious frameworks to assuage themselves of any experience of desperation But that thing just keeps happening over and over again throughout human history. In the first century, it was Second Temple Judaism that was guilty of that mistake. But it happens repeatedly. As communities come into, have experiences that ignite passionate relationships with God, they then, as generations follow, form traditions that increasingly grow hollow and empty And they begin to rely on that place of tradition. They begin to presume on those liturgies, oftentimes. This has recurred over and over again in history. And because of that place of tradition, because they're so sure that they're living in the culture of God-favoredness, they then fail to have any experience of desperation characterize their faith. It's like, I know that I'm connected to God. I know that I'm in Christ. I know that I'm walking with God. I know that God is favoring me because I'm in church, because I'm fellowshipping with other Christians, because I read the Bible, because I identify as a Christian, because I have theological understandings that articulate to me that God is with me and for me, because I know that Jesus forgives me. We build these theological understandings 
which are lovely and beautiful and true, but then we use them as walls of self-protection to prevent us from ever having to experience need and desperation in our lives. We become Christian Stoics. Because the gospel is objectively true, because we're part of a tradition that's proclaiming God's free and indiscriminate grace and forgiveness, we then believe that we don't have to participate in our particular story in that harrowing, dreadful, awful, terrifying experience of being forgiven. We can just objectively assent to it, theologically assent to it, and never experience it in our daily lives never experience that place of desperate need and longing, that place where you're actually wondering, is God really going to come through? I think for educated and privileged Christians in the West, this teaching of God's objective forgiveness of the world has convinced us, I'm good. He's got my back. I don't want you to hear me here creating some kind of a caricature of easy believism or something that we could dismiss easily because what I'm talking about here is subtle and deceptive and rampant. It's rampant in Christianity throughout the Western world. It's rampant in churches in our nation. It's rampant in this church. It's rampant in us. It's this place of moving God to be a religious accessory on the basis of these true things that we turn into walls to protect ourselves from the harrowing and dangerous experience of faith. It's hard for us to not go there because we've read the teaching of the Apostle Paul for centuries. The tradition that we subscribe to the lineage that this church participates in, Protestant Christianity. We've heard these indiscriminate free gifts that Paul speaks of, this radical forgiveness of God that he's shared with us. We've been reading about it for centuries. The church is steeped in it. Our church is steeped in it. And we've even read of Paul dismantling Jewish complacency And we've read in that somehow that we could never become complacent, that we are the antidote to Jewish complacency, that Protestant theology justification by faith, the free gift of God to all peoples, somehow protects us or spares us from walking in the error of apathetic Second Temple Judaism. We've read these precious words of Paul, like Romans Romans chapter 10, verse 4, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. These are sweet words, of course, that we don't have to be Jewish. We don't have to practice some particular form of religious activity in order to have grace from God, that God initiates relationship with us, not by way of us working our way up to him through the law, but by his free gift of grace, by him moving toward us, by him bestowing on us a righteousness through Christ, not through the works of the law. These are precious and good things, precious things that this church proclaims among many other churches, and we receive these words by faith. Oftentimes they are the words that lead us into our first encounter with God, convert us into being Christians. But then 
over the centuries for church traditions and over the years for individual Christians, these words begin to lose their experiential power and we start to do exactly what the first century Jews did. We turn beautiful, true things into walls that protect us from the experience of faith. Walls that protect us from the danger of faith. The first century Jews, they did not have regular experience of knowing their need for God. Their religious leaders were not marked by desperation and need. They were not marked by an acknowledgement of their brokenness by a pleading and longing for God to meet them and cover them. They were marked by stoicism, by overdue, undue confidence that they were in the right place with God. I think this is happening in our day, that Christians in the West, by and large, do not live out our faith in an experience of neediness, that we presume on God's grace. We have God as a religious accessory in our beliefs about him. We think right thoughts about God in Western Christianity. And therefore, we're good, right? Like we've thought the right doctrines. So I'm good. We're good. Meanwhile, where is the desperation? Where is the humility? Where is the love? As it turns out, religious privilege, having all of the right thinking about God, winds up being a great barrier often to having an experience with God, to having the desperate experience of longing for God. Being born into the right people, having the right traditions steeped in the right practice, it obscures God, because we can pretend that we are less needy than we are. And we empty out all of the richness of our traditions when we fall into this trap. Paul turns in this section of Romans and warns the Gentiles of this very thing. He says, this is what's happened among the Jews. This is what's happened in Second Temple Judaism. But he says, watch out, you Gentiles. If it can happen to the Jews, it can surely also happen to you because God is not a respecter of persons. He doesn't play favorites. There's no one who ever finds themselves in a privileged class with God. He thinks nothing of bringing people and nations and religious systems to their knees if only to wake people up, if only to stir people back up into life with him. God even goes so far as to tearing down nations and religious systems that he himself has built. It was God who instructed the Jews to build the temple. It was God who instructed the Jews to participate in the traditions of Second Temple Judaism. These are not evil or wrong things. It's God who's instructed us in the gospel, who's proclaimed the freedom of forgiveness to us. God thinks nothing of tearing down the traditions and theologies that he has handed to us, if only to lead us back into that place of desperate reliance, relational faith in him. He wants us to have that experience of desperate neediness that would catapult us into a life of true 
faith. It's a very sweet truth that God doesn't play favorites. That's one of the most precious truths that Gentiles hold on to. It's the basic truth of Protestant Christianity, that God doesn't look more favorably on some peoples than others, or on peoples who have been more righteous than others, or peoples that have worked their way higher up than others. The Apostle Paul speaks of this in Romans 10, and we Protestants love verses like this, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. Those are life-changing words, no matter who you are. If you seek the Lord, you will find him. He's not far off from anyone. He's drawn near to us in Christ. He's determined to be God with us. But those sweet words become empty verbiage when we use them to build walls of self-protection. We use them to protect the kind of lives that we want to live. I'm a Christian. I've gone to church for years. I've sought God, so I'm all in. It's all good. But the life of God that he is offering us is not a life that would render us all good. His primary invitation to us is not to assuage any difficulties or anxieties. It's not to give us some stoic, suburban, self-protective existence. It's not to render our lives safe. The life that God is offering us is a dangerous invitation into adventure, into the adventure of love, a dangerous invitation into sacrifice and service where we would lose all of our standing, lose all that we are, where we would live daily desperate on him where we would have no other place to look on a daily experience of faith than to find rest in Christ. Not to see Christ as one little piece of decoration in our safe lives, but as our only source for life and sustenance. As the only thing that beggars are receiving on a daily basis. This is the life that God's inviting us into. He himself manifested this life in his son, Jesus, who did not live a protected, safe life. Jesus manifested God as a lion, the lion of Judah, who came to ravage the evils of this world with his love. Jesus was a man of war whose weapons were forgiveness and compassion and revolutionary love. It's a radical thing to come into the life of God. It's a harrowing thing to come into the life of God. There is no safety, temporally speaking, in the life of God. Jesus didn't come to save us into a life of removed apathy, where we're protected behind walls of religious sloganeering. The Dutch theologian and Catholic priest, Henri Nouwen, Uh, He died now about 20 years ago, but wrote prolifically during the 20th century. And in his book, The Return of the Prodigal Son, Nouwen writes about this phenomenon, that as people come into faith and build traditions around these glorious truths, that they then begin to presume on their relationship with God and grow apathetic to God and actually depart from the life of faith and simply speak of it. (laughs) 
from outside of it. And reflecting on his own journey in this regard, Nowen wrote, As I reflect on my own journey, I become more and more aware of how long I have played the role of observer. For years, I had instructed students on the different aspects of the spiritual life, trying to help them see the importance of living it. But had I myself really ever dared to step into the center, kneel down, and let myself be held by a forgiving God? The simple fact of being able to express an opinion, to set up an argument, to defend a position, and to clarify a vision has given me and gives me still a great sense of control. Generally, I feel much safer in experiencing a sense of control over an undefinable situation than in taking the risk of letting that situation control me. Certainly, there were many hours of prayer, many days and months of retreat, and countless conversations with spiritual directors but I had never fully given up the role of bystander. Even though there has been in me a lifelong desire to be an insider looking out, I nevertheless kept choosing over and over again the position of the outsider looking in. Sometimes this looking in was a curious looking in, sometimes a jealous looking in, sometimes an anxious looking in, and once in a while, even a loving looking in. But giving up the somewhat safe position of the critical observer seemed like a great leap into totally unknown territory. I so much wanted to keep some control over my spiritual journey to be able to predict at least a part of the outcome, that relinquishing the security of the observer for the vulnerability of the returning sun seemed close to impossible. There is no remedy for the complacency that Nowen is speaking of, except for God to break in and tear to the ground all of the walls and systems that we have used to protect ourselves. This is the faithful mercy of God in history. That when we begin to build traditions and churches and theologies, that keep us from the desperate experience of the life of faith, God is faithful to burn them to the ground. He did so in first century Judaism, second temple Judaism. We know from history that the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD. The whole basis of Jewish religious life was destroyed in 70 AD and has never been rebuilt. I think looking with eyes of faith, any person who is alive and paying attention to the rhythms of Western Christianity might come to the conclusion that God is doing something quite similar in our day. That the complacency and lifelessness of Christianity in the West, all of the systems and orders that we have used to protect our places of privilege in society are being ripped to the ground. Take heart. This is the mercy of God to us. We can see as we look out over the expanse of the church around the world that the leadership of the church is being shifted. It's being shifted east to places like China and Korea. It's being shifted south, the southern hemisphere. Vibrant movements of gospel desperation are breaking out in the southern hemisphere. 
Even in the Muslim world, there is a surge of faithful Christianity emerging. This is a great gift to us. That all of the places and institutions and things that we've used to wall ourselves off from the experience of desperation that has defined Christianity over the ages, things like martyrdom and loss, removal from the place of position of power, that all of those things are coming for us and it is the mercy of God to us. God is on the move. His life and his kingdom surround us. And just as he offered the Apostle Paul this great gift of repentance, right in the middle of him dismantling first century Judaism, he offers that gift of repentance to Christians in the West today. That we would embrace what God is doing as he dismantles these things, that we would let them be dismantled, that we would be ushered back into that place of desperate Faith that we would come to know again what it is to have relationship with God defined by need. We are beggars. And beautiful thinking about faith is no substitute for that desperate life of faith. There have been enough beautiful thoughts on faith in the West. Paul closes this section this way for just as you were at one time disobedient to God but now have received mercy because of their that's Jewish disobedience so they too have now been disobedient in order but that by the mercy shown to you they also may now receive mercy for God has considered consigned all to disobedience that he might have mercy on all oh the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God how unsearchable are his judgments And how inscrutable his ways. God tears down the safe religious systems in our lives in his mercy in order that he might invite us into a desperate adventure of love with him. Let's pray. Father, I pray that this community would have eyes of faith to see your hand at work in our city, in our nation, in the world. That we would not be naive to your severity. That you do not consider it but a trifle to bring all the things that we depend on to nothing and to bring us into a place of desperate neediness for you. I pray that you would grant that repentance to this church that we would be a church that forgoes that place of security and safety, that we would give up on thoughts of longevity, that we'd be stirred by your spirit to run into dangerous places of love, loving one another, loving our neighbor, losing ourselves in the adventure that is your life. Help us in these things, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.